As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you can possibly think of, has its own history, like spring onions, bends, and wallpaper. Oh, Sam, I so want to do wallpaper. It's so topical at the moment. Can I just ask a question? How much, how much would you spend on a roll of wallpaper? How big's the roll? Well, just an, just say an ordinary roll. So, uh, so, uh, so a kind of a kind of role that might um, that might paper an upstairs flat somewhere in central London, maybe. Okay, a hundred pounds. A hundred pounds. Apparently, Boris Johnson paid eight hundred pounds a roll. Wow. Um, which is which I, is terrible, terrible, yeah. terrible, terrible. But no, but I mean, actually, I, I, I'm not sure I answered that properly. I wouldn't pay a hundred pounds. <laughs> I'd pay about ten. <laughs> Yes, we yeah. we bought some ridiculously expensive, what I thought was extravagant wallpaper that was about a hundred pounds a roll, uh, to go in a cupboard, and then uh, it was no good because the patterns wouldn't match up in such a small place, and then the company <laughs> the company wouldn't take it back. Um, oh so terrible. Anyway, I think we should possibly think about doing wallpaper or poison, or we could do mumps, clumps, and down in the dumps. We could do humps, grumps, and flumps. I don't know whether you remember the flump, Sam. You're probably far too young for it, but it, it's well worth a watch. A children's series of these little sort of stuffed puppet, round puppety uh, figures. Uh, and I've introduced them to my 11-year-old daughter. And the two of us are currently dancing around the house, singing the theme tune and acting out the characters while my wife and much more sensible nine-year-old daughter look on at us as if we are truly and utterly mad. <laughs> <laughs> yes. How, however, we will be following the links in our minds <laughs> as we come across them, explaining, explaining very carefully and extremely seriously how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew, and this was one of my favourite recent episodes, who knew that the history of cards is in fact all about the prize papers of the High Court of Admiralty. It's about annotations in 17th century political culture. It's about the Popish plot of 1678. It's about fashionability, gaming, leisure and gambling. It's about threats to moral society. It's also about money, the armada and German printmakers. And as somebody pointed out on social media, it should also have been about tarot cards, which was something we didn't do at all. Or hmm. that the history of tongues 
again, this is one of my recent favourites, is in fact all about licking earthenware and the tongue as an important archaeological tool, very important archaeological tool. It's about Mary Bateman and tongue collecting. It's about the removal of tongues. It's also all about tongue twisters and the history of elocution. It's about the cultural politics of sticking out one's tongue as a greeting, an act of aggression, or even as a rude affront or a gesture of flirtation. There we are, Sam. Two extraordinary recent episodes. Mm, tongues was very good. Well, you, everyone, you're probably wondering who is doing all of this introducing, who, who, the, who my co-presenter is. Let me say that if history... You've got to pay attention for this one, James. If history was a Always. young boy... If history was a young boy from a modest background in Corsica, <laughs> the man who presents this podcast would be the person bearing the crown at the Duomo in Milan in May 1805 to crown that young boy from Corsica, yes, it is Napoleon Bonaparte, as King of Italy, a title which had been dormant for 249 years since the abdication of the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V in 1556. This man would be the enabler of historical smugness at an unprecedented level. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. Hello, he is James Hello, James. Hello, <laughs> <Here's> James Daybell. <laughs> hello, 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 Sam. Sam Willis. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, 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 Napoleon's one of my uh, sort of historical heroes. If you're allowed to, we're allowed to have historical heroes. And the man not sitting opposite me, because we are still social distancing. We're still social distancing. Well, let's just say, if he were a smug-related historian, he'd only be the very opposite of smugness. So modest and fair-minded is he in his historical judgments. So egalitarian is he in his sifting of the evidence. So socially just are his endeavours in the archives. Yes, you've guessed it. It's your friend and mine across town, the famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. (laughs) Good. Thank you very much. Hello, everyone. Good. um, I love that. Sifting the evidence. Um, so what we're doing smugness, um, which is a cracking topic. Um, James, you suggested it and have since discovered it's slightly more difficult than you thought it, it was is. going to be. It is. The only reason I wanted to do it was because I bought myself for Christmas uh, a really interesting sounding book by Tiffany Watts-Smith, who's a, a historian of emotions called Schadenfreude, The Joy of Another's Misfortune. And in it, there's a chapter called The Smug. So I just wanted an excuse to force myself to read that, and I did. Mm. So I'm going to be riffing on that. But before we go off and beetle on our various journeys, Sam, talking about different bits that we found out, I thought we should have a chat about smugness um, mm. and 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 in general terms. Uh, yeah. Smugness is something that's really that really irks me. I don't mind arrogance. Arrogance is totally fine. Be arrogant and confident as you like. Can't get enough arrogance in the world. But smugness, for some reason, really gets under my skin. You know, it's, it's that sort it of self-satisfied, sort of just, you know, complacent judgment that people have over over others. And I came across this really funny clip on YouTube that I thought you'd like because everyone in our age bracket is currently getting the vaccine in the UK. And and this was something that came out quite early on uh, in the sort of vaccine cycle. And it's a guy called Josh Berry, who's a, a, a comedian. And 
and he's check it check it out josh josh berry impressions and he's talking about the oxford vaccine and he plays this sort of character who's this um obviously somebody who's got into Oxford University and is really sort of, you know, confident and self-assured, really smug about it. Uh, and then he he uses that to basically do a skit about the, the Oxford vaccine. And, and he goes, it's sort of like, he goes, he goes, what what vaccine did you get? Oh, oh yeah, 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 that's great. Uh, me? Oh, oh, Oxford. Well, well, I, I just thought everyone else in my family had it. So, so I thought, why not me? I, I just didn't want to settle for the, the Pfizer one. No offence. Yeah, Oxford. Ox- the Oxford vaccine has been incredibly enabling, actually. You know, it's it's not just that other vaccines are worse. It just sort of gives your immune system a better foundation. And the testing's just so much more rigorous. You know, you and I are probably quite similar, but I, I just respond a lot better under pressure than you would. Yeah, Oxford has done me quite well. So it's that sort of, you know, <laughs> you, you, know you recognise it, don't you? That sort of sense of smugness, self-satisfaction judgment over people that can be it can be religious ideological based on wealth and class and position um and being being somebody who moves in academic circles you rub shoulders with some really smug people (laughs) throughout your, your your sort of professional life and this week I must admit Met, I met one of the most smug people I've met in a long time. You know that kind of intellectual smugness that can really often mm. inflict itself upon professors. That sort of comfortable self-satisfaction in yeah. intellectual superiority. Um, I, 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 I'm not going to name any names, and it certainly wasn't somebody at my own institution, uh, but certainly somebody elsewhere. And it's really, you know, really irksome. It's also something that you can level against politicians. You look at Priti Patel, for example, and that self-satisfied smirk that she has all over her face that just screams out smugness. Or Michael Gove is the very embodiment of smugness. Um, But it's also something that can be levelled not just at the right, but also weaponised against the left. So a quick Google search around smug liberals will pull up all sorts of articles demonising the liberals in the US, you know, who sit in judgment upon you know, the far right. Obama was somebody who was criticised routinely for being for being smug. So it's a it's a really interesting interesting term. What's your experience of smugness, Doctor Willis? It was interesting when I started thinking about it. It made me realise just how complicated it actually is. Yes, as you say, it's not arrogance. It's something more than that. Um, and I know I, I'd like to have spent a little, a little more time thinking about it. I, I started because I have a, um, I have a portrait of Napoleon being crowned um, in in my house, <laughs> um, uh, which was done for part of my uh, little Ladybird series, and that was done for the Battle of Trafalgar one, and it really made me stop and think about about that, and so, uh, you know, sort of um, smugness in terms of personal achievement in history because I actually think he was pretty smug about being king of Italy having come from very modest roots in Corsica I mean I I introduced you as uh as, as being the man crowning the the smug Napoleon but you know he would have also been smug when he he changed from being a general to the first consul of France he basically becomes a dictator in everything but name and then in 1802 just you know a couple of years later when that 
job title, which was initially for a decade, becomes for life. Um, and then it changes in magnitude again just two years after that when he crowns himself Emperor of the French. And all of this happens before he's King of Italy. Um, and I actually I, I tried to find his his proper um, titles. He was the Imperial and Royal Majesty Napoleon I, by the grace of God and the Constitution of the Republic, Emperor of the French, King of Italy, Protector of the Confederation of the Rhine, Mediator of the Swiss Confederation, and Co-Prince of Andorra. So you've got this... I love the idea of having a kind of a ladder of smugness, um, you know, throughout his life, these d- different moments of, of self-satisfaction and achievement. And, and interestingly, having done that for Napoleon, I suddenly thought we could, you know, do something very similar to Nelson. So this is what's inscribed on his coffin. He's the most noble Lord Horatio Nelson, Vice Count and Baron Nelson of the Nile and of Burnham Thorpe in the county of Norfolk, Baron Nelson of the Nile and of Hilbert in the said county, Knight of the Most Honourable Order of the Bath, Vice Admiral of the White Squadron of the Fleet, Commander-in-Chief of His Majesty's Ships and Vessels in the Mediterranean, Duke of Bronte in Sicily, Knight Grand Cross of the Sicilian Order of St Ferdinand and of Merit, Member of the Ottoman Order of the Crescent, Knight Grand Commander of the Order of St Joachim. He was a Colonel of the Marines. He was voted a Freeman of Bath, Salisbury, Exeter, Plymouth, Monmouth, Sandwich, Oxford, Hereford and Worcester. And um, having talked about Oxford, James, you'd like this. um, He had an honorary degree from the University of Oxford. (laughs) (laughs) He, um, He had an honorary degree as a Doctor of Civil Law. And all of this um, from a chap who... Um, he was, you know, the sixth of 11, 11 children um, born in a rectory in Burnham Thorpe in Norfolk. And um, he's a fascinating character as well, rather like Napoleon. And he was not averse to a little bit of smugness at all in his life. So, yeah, I, I thought about um, moments of smugness which might have been caused by dramatic changes in life circumstance. Mm, very good. Very, very good. Um that sort of that sort of smugness of um of historical figures as well is is i think is really interesting and i think you could you could look at that across a range of figures i'm i'm thinking of ian kershaw's brilliant biography of hitler and it, it's in two two parts um and the first the first part from his birth up until 1936 is called hubris so it's that kind of almost that sort of arrogance and confidence and smugness not necessarily in him but certainly in 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 germany as it emerges in you know in the out of weimar period the sort of you know first world war and beyond and then into this sort of the emergence of the the nazi state so it's something that you could um that you could level at that but i i want to talk about um about the about Schadenfreude connected to um, to smugness, because I was, as I said earlier on, I was reading um, Tiffany Watt Smith's brilliant uh, book Schadenfreude: The Joy of Another's Misfortune, uh, which is really an extraordinary book. Uh, and this is the idea that basically you get some sort of sense of of, of sort of enjoyment in other people's failure. And I suppose one of the sort of one of the opposite sides of the coin from smugness is actually seeing people who are genuinely smug, superior, pretentious, you know, whatever, is actually seeing them fail. 
and seeing them, you know, not doing quite as well as they as they should do. And I suppose that's something that we, you know, probably we shouldn't admit to, but probably we we sort of, um, you know, you you certainly in British society, I, I don't think you want you, we don't celebrate success enough. Um, and and she just gives a couple of examples at the outset. So, for example, this is an example of, of smugness and sort of co- coinciding with schadenfreude. Uh, she writes, when the state-of-the-art glass walls at Apple's new Norman Foster-designed HQ, Apple Park Campus, achieve such high levels of transparency that workers are injured walking into them and resort to sticking it post-it notes on the glass so people know it's there. Or <laughs> when the doorbell rings and I find my husband, who regularly gives me tutorials on correct key management, has forgotten his keys. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> um, and she starts this this little chapter by um, with a painting of... Peter Bruegel by Peter Bruegel the Elder, which is the landscape with the fall of Icarus, uh, oh, know, which yeah. was painted in roughly 1555. And she said, "What what's extraordinary about this is if you think about the if you think about the story of Icarus, you know Icarus and and his father, his father um, creates um, the the maze to in Greek mythology to you know trap uh, the Minotaur." And is then imprisoned and then sort of designs these wings to escape. And he and his son, um, practice, the son Icarus, practices flying to escape from, from Crete. And his father warns him against, against you know, arrogance and overconfidence, essentially being smug. Um, and instructs him, you know, don't don't fly too near the sun. We all know that the story or too low so that the the sea will will dampen the wings. And what happens is he then he then, um, you know, flies too near the sun. The wax melts and he falls into the sea and is and is and is drowned. Well, what's fascinating about Bruegel's uh, picture is that what we have is a basically on the cliff. There's a, there are ships in the in in the ocean. Uh, there are a couple of um peasants tending animals one is with a horse and plow uh and you have to look very carefully uh to see icarus but the whole thing is titled you know the fall of icarus and then you notice uh in the bottom uh right hand corner there's this sort of couple of legs uh out of the out of the water and it's basically icarus uh who has fallen and he isn't the centerpiece of this so he's not being lauded for being um you know brilliant and this sort of you know wonderful figure in history he's actually not even a footnote he's you know he's not being looked at at all and i suppose what that does for the chapter it opens it up with this idea about how people are you know quite happy with smug people having their bubbles burst um so he sort of plops into the ocean in you know almost complete anonymity um the book is is really interesting in a as a as a exercise of writing history because what it is it's it's actually a very slight volume and it's not necessarily concerned with archival endeavor um so there there isn't actually that much history in it but nonetheless, it's fascinating because what it does is it it unpicks this whole idea about what Schadenfreude 
and in this chapter what smugness is about uh and i think that uh, that's you know it's quite an interesting methodology any of you wanting a quick interesting historical read i would definitely recommend it it comes out with the welcome collection um and i think it's fascinating the the sort of journey that it takes um and really what it's trying to do the chapter is to try and get at why what it is we dislike about smugness and some of this is some of this is cultural and it, it very near to the beginning of the chapter it looks at uh, a novel written in 1933 called a fugitive crosses his tracks uh, which is by a danish author uh, axel uh, sandemors and um and in it it's set in a fictional town and basically what they don't re what it's encapsulating is the idea that the danes don't really like any kind of ambitiousness or individualism and it's set in a in a town um fictional town called yanta uh and there are a series of rules that they put forward you're not to think you are anything special you're not to think you're as good as we are you're not to think you are smarter than we are you're not to imagine yourself better than us you're not to think you know more than we do you're not to think you're more important than we are you're not to think you are good at anything you're not to laugh at us you're not to think anyone cares about you you're not to think you can teach us anything so there's this idea then that they just don't want any kind of any sort of confidence and you know self confidence putting yourself forward but actually people should sort of blend into the background and just get on and there's this sort of you know there's almost a, a contempt here for individual flair for ambition for aspiration and i think this is something that you know probably runs through uh, modern western society and many people i think you know really want to cut people down to size if you think about it it's rather like the way in which people attack experts so they often want to puncture the bubble of experts you know and this goes back to the brexit debate i suppose with michael gove um you know saying that people aren't interested in experts or it's people like you know decca records rejected the beatles in 1962 which is an example that appears in the book uh dismissive um that dismissing them saying guitar groups are on the way out um or another example the book gives is michael fish in 1987 uh, a woman phones in to this is the the weatherman a woman phones in to the bbc saying that there's a hurricane uh, on the way and he sort of you know smugly sort of sits back going oh, i've got all the technology you know that there isn't and then basically one of the biggest storms in over 300 years just batters um the british isles you know for the next week or so so it's actually sort of it's actually sort of punching holes in those in those individuals but i suppose why what is it about smugness that people historically have disliked and i think part of it is a it's there's a there's a sense in which one doesn't like other people being more successful than you there's a sense of uncomfortableness about your own position that you're being you're being judged that people are seeing themselves as superior so there's a sort of there's a jealousy of it um and i'll leave it there for the moment but i also want to come back 
to actually look at it from a religious point of view, because I actually think that part of what is driving our dislike of smugness is actually a Christian tradition that sees it as sinful and sees it as something that needs correcting and needs transforming. But I will leave it there for the moment, Sam. Um, mm, but you good. should all go out and read Tiffany Watt-Smith's Schadenfreude. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Um, I've got a Siegfried Sassoon poem for you. Oh, we love Siegfried Sassoon poetry. <laughs> I knew a simple soldier boy who grinned at life in empty joy. Slept soundly through the lonesome dark and whistled early with the lark. In winter trenches, cowed and glum, with crumps and lice and lack of rum, he put a bullet through his brain. No one spoke of him again. You smug-faced crowds with kindling eye, who cheer when soldier lads march by, sneak home and pray you'll never know the hell where youth and laughter go. Wow. That's some some poem. Um, it's called Suicide in the Trenches. Very much uh, speaks for itself. You know, he's he's describing the horrors of war. He's satirising the uh, those smug-faced crowds, those people who, I think, in Sassoon's view, were were, were very much responsible for the the celebration of the war, the kind of the jingo jingoistic way that it was uh, it was represented um, back home. Um, so you know, essentially, what we've got here is is someone who's been taken from a typical life that was supposed to be full of youth and laughter, who is um, overwhelmed by the grim realities of war, and then in in complete despair uh, shoots himself in the head. Um, this the, the contrast at the beginning, I think, is fascinating. The sense of him being carefree, about him being able to sleep so peacefully, rising early in the morning, rising cheerfully. Um, then is the the insect bites, lack of alcohol. He, he he shoots himself, and he's quickly forgotten. 
it's the self-satisfaction of these people back home, which I think also Sassoon's become really interested in. Um, and the way that they're applauding people marching through the streets. Um, I think the point he's trying to make here is that there's almost like a celebration of war, um, people being encouraged, implicitly encouraged uh, in the waste of life and, and what, what Sassoon, I think, sees as a cycle of violence. Um, and he, you know, he's angry with them. He he basically tells them to scurry off back home and to, to pray that they never have to experience the hell that is war um, that he knows so much about and which destroys all of that wonderful innocence and joy that you hear at the start of the poem. Um, what got me thinking about this was a wonderful book I'm reading at the moment called The Whereabouts of Ineas McNulty by Sebastian Barry. And it um, follows a young kid. He's just 15 or 16 from Sligo in the west of Ireland. And he he talks about the, the moment of joining up and the excitement, a kind of fever of excitement which sweeps through his his little part of Ireland where really not very much is going on at all. And the, they're all so excited and, and desperate to go and fight in, in France that they happily uh, march off to war. And, of course, the majority of them never come back. And it's that celebration of war, um, the encouragement of, of a kind of never-ending cycle of violence, um, which which Sassoon is really targeting. And um, particularly those, I think, who who have not gone to fight and they're, they're, they're applauding with, with a significant amount of smugness that they have not... Um, not had to to face those horrors. That's a lovely line that you smug-faced crowds with isn't kindling it? eye, isn't it? it? It really is. And what does it get about the sort of the, the the home front and that kind of complacency of you know people who aren't having to fight the face the horrors of the trenches and those those people who are those people who within the communities are encouraging the young men to sign up and then in their own sort of complacent self-satisfaction at home are reaping the rewards that are basically being, you know, won through the sort of blood and guts of young men. It's yeah. a lovely sort of image. And I think, you know, it's an image that kind of that smugness um, is something that I think you see throughout World War One poetry. And certainly it's something that um, Sassoon you know, plays on, you know, the idea of the country squire sort of, you know, rounding the boys up to sort of send them off. Yeah, you could see it as the sort of, also as the, the sort of smug schoolmaster who rounds the kids up at Eton and sort of sends them off. And then you go back, you know, years later and walk through the chapel and there you see the tattered flat regimental flags, you know, flying as, as memories of these sort of fallen youth. Wonderful, Sam. Hmm. Tell me about religion and smugness. That sounded fascinating. <laughs> religion and smugness. Right. Back to back to Tiffany Watt Smith's book on Schadenfreude and the chapter on um, on the smug, uh, because I think one of the things that one of the things that I think drives our reaction to smugness and our reaction to um, to sort of, I suppose it's it. it this is it, it. This here is where our definition of smugness needs to expand, 
because I think smugness, you can wrap it up with arrogance and pride and all of these sorts of things that are seen as, you know, that can be sort of related to smugness, um, but that are often seen as connected to sin, that somebody being sort of too big for their boots, needing to be, you know, brought down a peg or two. Some of that can exist at a secular level, but also a lot of it is being driven by, a lot of it is being driven by religion. And in the book, she she interviews um, a philosopher uh, from the University of Virginia, John Portman, who has been brought up in a Catholic um, home in the United States. And yeah, he had a strict upbringing. His mother taught him that arrogance was sinful. And what, what's actually driving a lot of this is that she wanted him to, you know, but it, basically um, reflect and think about his sort of arrogance and pride. And actually, when he failed, it was a way of God showing him something. I think we should do something on the history of failure as well, because oh, I, think yeah. it, it, I think it relates to this. If you think about the, the Bible, the Bible, you know, is full of examples of people who are, you know, who are, you know, punished for their, their sort of arrogance or smugness if, you know if we think about the um in proverbs 24 17 um the the passage about john uh, do not gloat when your enemy falls when they stumble do not let your heart rejoice this is in the the old testament so there's this there's this actually you know not wanting to sort of feel schadenfreude but then also if you think about the way throughout Christian art and literature there are all sorts of images about people actually quite enjoying the suffering of those who are smug or have have sinned um the book talks about Hieronymus Bosch's The Last Judgment which if you haven't seen it ever go and have a look at it because it is quite extraordinary it's a it's a triptych so it's in three parts um, and you know, in the in the first part of it, you've got the what you've got the um, Garden of Eden, the sort of beautiful sort of idyllic um, landscape, um, and you've got angels in the sky. You've got God sitting, you know, at the top. You've then got um, God creating Eve from Adam's rib. Blah 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 blah. And so it so it goes on. The central part of the of the painting depicts the last judgment based on John's book of Revelation and God here is a is a is a judge surrounded by um Mary the apostles um and then the 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 right panel is the hell um and it's you know it and it's it really is it picks up on the sort of lower parts of the sort of main bit which is depictions of of hell with monstrous creatures in it the damned are being burned. They're hung from butcher's hooks. There are all sorts of bizarre machines used to torture them. The 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 devils seem to be sort of in insect form, and they're riding them, and they're beating them, and they're poking them, and sticking things in them. And there's this sense in which actually what they're doing is they are, you know, they're really enjoying the kind of punishment um, that they're you know that they're they're taking and this is actually a you know it's a trope throughout um you know throughout throughout religion 
And I want to end here with a with the the very opposite of this, this sort of a reaction to this sort of smugness and and sort of self satisfaction. And I want to take us to 19th century America and the presidency of Abraham Lincoln. And there was a he introduced on the 30th of March 1863 something called a day of national humiliation, fasting and prayer. And if you think about the Christian tradition, there has constantly been a theme of you know self-censure and punishment often self-inflicted whether this be that through the confessional whether it be through the tradition of flagellation so actually whipping yourself and punishing yourself for your your sinful deeds but here we have it embodied in an annual day of humiliation fasting and prayer and this was brought about because Senator James Harlan, uh, who was from Iowa and whose daughter uh, actually married Lincoln's son, he, this Harlan, introduced this resolution in the Senate on the 2nd of March in 1863. And it asked Lincoln to proclaim a national day of, of prayer and fasting. And this was actually adopted. Uh, and I'll read you the proclamation. By the President of the United States of America, a proclamation. Whereas the Senate of the United States, devoutly recognising the supreme authority and just government of Almighty God in all the affairs of men and of nations, has by a resolution requested the President to designate and set apart a day for national prayer and humiliation. And whereas it is the duty of nations as well as of men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon and to recognise the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord." And insomuch as we know that by his divine law, nations like individuals are subjected to punishments and chastisements in this world, may we not justly fear that the awful calamity of civil war, which now desolates the land, may be but a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins to the needful end of our national reformation as a people. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. So we're getting at that sort of idea of smugness there. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity and redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our sins and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. Now, therefore, in compliance with the request and fully concurring in the views of the Senate, I do by this my proclamation designate and set apart 
Thursday, the 30th day of April, 1863, as a day of national humiliation, fasting and prayer. And I do hereby request all the people to abstain on that day from their ordinary secular pursuits and to unite at their several places of public worship and their respective homes in keeping the day holy to the Lord and devoted to the humble discharge of the religious duties proper to that solemn occasion. All this being done in sincerity and truth, let us then rest humbly in the hope authorised by the divine teachings that the united cry of the nation will be heard on high and answered with blessings, no less than the pardon of our national sins and the restoration of our now divided and suffering country to its former happy condition of unity and peace. In witness whereof I have hereunto set my hand and caused the seal of the United States to be affixed, done at the city of Washington this 30th day of March, A.D. 1863, and of the independence of the United States, the 87th, Abraham Lincoln. Isn't that amazing, Sam? It is amazing. It is amazing. And um, it makes you realise, you know, how many... Well, this, this our whole idea of, of smugness in the past and um, how it might have changed slightly by what, you know, what people meant by it and what, what we think it means now. Exactly. Um, and that actually made me, me um, I'll just quickly look this up. Smug, adjective, comes from the 1550s, meaning trim, neat, spruce and smart. Possibly an alteration of Low German smuck, meaning trim and neat, from the Middle Low German smucken to adorn or to dress. Um, and it's from the same source as, as the modern word smock. So there you go. And um, the, the meaning of it being having a self-satisfied air doesn't appear until 1701. Mm. So there is, a, there is a deep history there. Um, I um, Just a very brief thing here. Uh, I was, I was look, thinking back through my life about when I was the most smug and I had a really, really smug moment. But it, I, it was, I kind of did it on my own. Um, and I'd, I'd gone for a walk. And it was kind of during lockdown last year. Um, and... I went out, it was in the summer, and I went out and I, I found an amazing um, a, a river and near it was an apple tree and there was an apple on the apple tree and I sat down by my river and I had an apple tree, an apple I stole off this, this tree. And it was unbelievably delicious, uh, particularly delicious. And it made me think about the um, sort of smug moments, but particularly associated with uh, with eating stolen fr- stolen fruit. Uh, and there is, of course, a wonderful history there. Um, and I found a description from the Second World War. Uh, um, this is from Paul Brett. The kitchen garden of my childhood was sumptuous. The front garden was bare by comparison. In autumn, hazelnuts needed cracking. Walnuts and stained hands had a party. In optimistic spring, the rubble of the air raid shelter was buried by a mass of yellow daffodils. The back garden was totally different. Black and red currants were delicious. The gooseberries were almost like syrup without any tartness when sunripe golden. The raspberries were flavoursome, except if eaten too soon, or I had missed a maggot. Most of the damsons became fantastic jam. I ate the rest. Father jealously guarded his tomatoes, especially when the crop was sparse. He loved the sweet enough fruit doused in vinegar. There was no excuse for missing tomatoes. Birds in our garden did not swallow tomatoes whole. Only us. And then he goes on to describe his next door neighbour, which is the bit I love. 
Behind a wooden garden shed there was a wall whose red bricks weathered pink. In the sunlight the broken glass, coloured crystal green and brown, were menacingly highlighted, fixed in concrete, battlements to repel invaders. Us. Behind this bastion was a real orchard. The wall's summit was gained from the wooden shed which stood close to the wall. Sacks found in the shed defeated the sharp glass. The man who shouted also had to be outwitted. I believed he had a gun. In my case, this was not necessary. My one and only attempt failed ignominiously. I came up fast like a scared jackrabbit. The peaches and apricots on the other side. The other day I asked my brother if he had been successful. Cagey, even now, he replied warily, I think I did once. So there we are, a bit of it. His, his brother being smug that he had he had conquered these battlements of broken glass and he'd gone into this terrifying garden um, protected by a, a kind of a poacher type man who shouted and maybe had a gun, uh, but he managed to scrump something. And I bet that those fruits that he took tasted absolutely delicious and a little bit of smugness there when he admitted it to his brother. Wonderful stuff. Lovely. I want to end, Sam, with a oh, okay, cool. little yeah. potpourri of smugness. Um, I've got a series of quotes and then a little story for you. Um, so the quotes from Virginia Woolf. I worship you, but I loathe marriage. I hate its smugness, its safety, its compromise, and the thought of you interfering with my work, hindering me. What would you answer? Gore Vidal. Next to I win, I told you so, are the sweetest words. And finally, from Rowan Atkinson of Blackadder fame. But actually, so many of the clerics that I've met, particularly the Church of England clerics, are people of such extraordinary smugness and arrogance and conceitedness, who are extraordinarily presumptuous about the significance of their position in society. Ooh, there's some ideas to get your teeth into. And to counterbalance that, I leave you with um, uh, a little story from A.A. Milne's Winnie the Pooh. And this is the story entitled In Which Tigger is Unbounced. And this is actually in, uh, this is going back to Tiffany Watt Smith's book on Schadenfreude. And you all know the, the character of Tigger, this sort of bouncy creature that comes into the, into the, the forest into Hundred Acre Wood, and the some of the the animals uh, think that he's basically too full of himself. And so what happens is the character Rabbit comes up with a plan, and his plan is basically to take Tigger way out into the forest, lose him, and then rescue him in the morning. And when asked by Winnie the Pooh why, Rabbit replies because he'll be a humble Tigger, because he'll be a sad Tigger, a melancholy Tigger, a small and sorry Tigger, and, oh, Rabbit, I'm glad to see you, Tigger. That's why, if we can make Tigger feel small and sad, just for five minutes, we will have done a good deed. Uh, what happens, though, is that they take Tigger out. Uh, he's absolutely fine, bouncy as anything, and it's Rabbit who becomes lost and basically becomes sorry and small and who, you know, who who gets his comeuppance. Um, yeah. So I don't know which one is supposed to be the smug one there. Uh, probably Rabbit, uh, the sort of, you know, <laughs> smug one judging, judging things. 
Yeah, it's um, well, yeah, kind of. It is slightly hard to pin down sometimes. There's smugness around, but you're not quite sure where it is. It is happens at school like lots. I think. I think there's a sense among certain teachers that people need to be brought down a peg or two, uh, which is something I absolutely abhor. Um, you know, I think there's a sort of there's a there can be a latent jealousy in rather bright pupils. Uh, whereas I think, um, I think ability and that kind of that sort of intellectual energy in the young needs nurturing and praising and encouraging, pushing um, people up a peg or two, pushing people up a peg. That's it, <laughs> pushing people up a peg or two. Yeah, shove them up the ladder of success, <laughs> rather than um, stamping on their fingers. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the uh, dad on smugness. I did. That was tremendous. Um, and we will come back possibly with wallpaper or maybe curtains. I'm not sure. Or maybe, or fun. maybe poison. Or poison. Yes, great. Or okay, all guys, three. Um, <laughs> uh, thanks for listening. Do please follow me on social media. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. And if you're interested in maritime and naval history, please check out the Mariners Mirror podcast. And you can follow me on Twitter at James Dable. You can follow the podcast on at Unexpected Pod. We're also on Instagram. We are on Facebook. We also have a Patreon page. If you feel um, unsmug and want to support uh, the very humble uh, endeavour, uh, which is this podcast, uh, very gratefully received. You can also check us out on our website, historiesoftheunexpected.com. But we will be back very soon, everyone. So take care. And see you soon. Bye. Cheerio, guys. Bye-bye.